0: Welcome. You're listening to Minding Our Mental Health with Aurora Behavioral Health Arizona. Each show will feature a new guest that will focus on a different field of study. We'll share information on areas of mental health while giving you some useful tools you can use every day. We are at our third podcast now and today we're going to be talking to Travis Bell who is our director of our special needs unit. Welcome Travis.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I was kind of looking at the different credentials and things that you possess, and it says you are a BCBA. I do not know what that stands for or what that is. Can you tell me?
1: Yes. So BCBA is Board Certified Behavior Analyst. So it's essentially a licensed uh, credential, go through schooling to study behavior and how to apply different techniques to work on behavior, work on behavior improvements, behavior reduction, and skill building.
0: I imagine that was a very fascinating career path for you to take.
1: Absolutely. My biggest thing with behavior analysis is it's really sort of data, very practical driven. And so we're constantly, I mean, for what it's for what it says, um, analysis, we're constantly analyzing things and that's kind of right up my alley. And It takes out some of the subjectivity of maybe your other typical therapies. And so that really appealed to me is that we're looking specifically on at numbers and for evidence of improvement in behavior.
0: The first thing I can think of is I actually have a friend of mine who said that the doctor was going to recommend that her three-year-old son be tested to see if he is autistic. Can you tell if a three-year-old is autistic? Like, why would the doctor think that? Can you even treat a kid that little? I mean,
1: yeah. So with autism, it is a developmental disability. So Anything that is related to development, you can detect as early as there any sort of milestones are supposed to be met. And it's actually interesting with autism, they keep, you know, the field continues to be able to detect autism earlier and earlier, as well as treat earlier and earlier. So I would actually go as far as to say is three years old is kind of old with the kind current. Is. Yeah, with the current practice. Last I heard just over a year, uh, maybe even before that, you're able to start seeing signs. Because again, think of any sort of milestone that's supposed to be met, whether it's a motor skill, meaning like walking, crawling, then the social skills, like even as an infant, you start to pick up on eye contact uh, with another person. And so if you see those things aren't happening, you can start to detect some deficiencies. And it's best practice to get in and start to work on building those skills sooner than later, just so that it's that early development. You can catch it early. And so there isn't a later sort of more challenging skills to have to work on later in their development. It's easier the younger they are.
0: I know she said the main thing that they looked at was that he wasn't talking. His vocabulary wasn't as big. He didn't speak as often. And what's interesting is he's a twin and his sister, I guess, is perfectly fine. So I don't know. I just thought that was kind of an interesting thing. I figured since I was talking to you that I would ask that question. Seems like you're seeing a lot more kids with autism. I'm hearing about it more. I'm seeing more in you know social media and awareness. Why is that? Is it that more aware of it now?
1: It's really a couple of things. It's I would say an improvement in the assessment process. As you as you get a diagnosis sort of developing and that you understand it better, you know what to look for. And so perhaps kids who would have otherwise been diagnosed with it 30, 40 years ago, they sort of it went unrecognized. And so in the early 2000s, I believe as the field, people in the field started to understand autism a little bit better, know what to look for, there was a, sort of a burst in the numbers. And I believe that that number has somewhat flattened out or that rate of diagnosis. It's still a pretty high number, you know, so it's that combination of understanding it better. And once you do that, it's not necessarily that all of a sudden everybody has it. It's just being able to detect detect those who otherwise would have it. And then of course, autism just in its nature is a spectrum disorder, meaning there is a, a variety in how it's expressed. Other developmental disabilities, they kind of have a pretty standard and typical way of expressing itself. Uh, a lot of times there's physical appearance cues or just, you know, just interaction cues. With autism on the other hand, especially somebody who's higher on the spectrum or higher functioning, it could it might not even be detected. There's some adults who you know are still sort of may may be curious whether or not they themselves or a family member or friend has it in it but it's not one of those things in some cases where you can just flat out recognize it it's it's a spectrum so there's varying degrees of it
0: that makes sense so that's why you might hear of somebody you know saying that oh yeah you know my son is a person with autism but he's able to you know, have a a job while he's in high school, that type of thing. And then you hear other people who, you know, know their, their child can't, can't work. They can't be in any type of, of setting. So that's what that spectrum means. It can be anywhere from maybe really severe to basically normal function, but just has some, a little bit of extra things with it. Yes. Which was yes. probably a terrible way to describe that. So I. Apologize.
1: No, I mean, there's. It's um, however you. I mean, essentially, best understand it. But but it is just that. It's it could. It's a a wide variety. So it does include those who simply cannot speak. Like they just. It's a neuro neurodevelopmental disease or disorder where you know it affects that part of communication and social interaction. You're not able to. So, like I said, you're sometimes. An individual might not be able to speak. Sometimes they might be able to speak, but not pick up on like tone and inflection in your voice or not pick up on certain sort of social cues like sarcasm and things like that. And so as you start to kind of go up there, it's it becomes less detectable. And, and yes, just like you said, there's varying degrees of function that come with it. You have people who are extremely successful um, extremely and, and fully independent, able to go about their lives and, you know, in a way that they choose. And, and so it's pretty interesting in that respect.
0: When, when you talk about the assessment, how is that assessment work? What do they do to, to determine that that's what's going on?
1: Well, there's various assessments, some more common than others, and they'll be looking at things such as their verbal communication in addition to other things that go with it. But they're also going to be looking to rule out things. There may be speech and language disorders that are occurring that don't involve other aspects of autism. So it's going to be sort of a comprehensive look at the individual while ruling out other cognitive delay and speech and language disorders.
0: I know at Aurora, we have a special needs unit. What's the difference between how do I know that that's just him and his normal behavior versus I should actually be getting him evaluated and he might actually need some additional extra help like the special needs unit.
1: Mm -hmm. So it's, it's for us, it's pretty straightforward with the special needs unit because we're a level one psychiatric hospital. So essentially it's, it's behavioral health. It's a, it's a autism plus a, Mental illness. So they refer to that as comorbid disorder. You know, typically you have somebody maybe with autism that has some, you know, needs with regard to developing social skills, and you've got different resources in the community for that. But for us, being a level one psychiatric facility, it comes down to mental stability and safety. So what determines that they come to us is that they're just there is you know, behavioral health challenges that are significant enough and dangerous enough to where they cannot function in the community. So when I say straightforward, it's they are physically combative and it's to the point where it's dangerous. They're combative with family, they're combative with peers. Maybe it's, uh, you know, a significant regression in ADLs or they're harming themselves again in a significant and dangerous way. So it's anything warranting hospital stay. So they're coming here for safety. Uh, so yes, we're that combination, special needs, development, working on behavior skills, but also our one of our primary focuses is on stabilization. So it may, might even involve psychotropic medication to help with some mood-related disorders. Uh, and then of course we do apply behavior analysis as well to continue to try to develop behavioral interventions and techniques. So to come to us, it's a matter of safety.
0: There's something severe going on. So maybe, you know, a kid that normally yells if he can't watch a TV show at a certain time, that all of a sudden starts throwing things, that type of behavior.
1: Yeah. And so what we find is we get a cluster of referrals around that. 12 years old, Mark. And so what happens at 12 around there? It's puberty.
0: I was going to say hormones.
1: Hormones kick in. And so what, what I often encounter, what we often encounter is these kids obviously have had autism their whole life or some sort of developmental disability their whole life. They've had communication issues. They might even had some anger issues, some behavioral issues, but they've been manageable. And so the families, they oftentimes try to manage it in-house, right? You don't want your kid going to a hospital. And so they try to do everything they can. There's outpatient services. Then they try different things all the way up until they get to that age where all of a sudden their body doubles in size and their aggression doubles in intensity. You know, you get a lot of, well, he's, I say, how long has they had long? How long has so-and-so been aggressive? Really? all their life. It's just gotten to the point where, you know, there is an actual safety risk at play. Parents may, you know, feel they are not safe in the home or siblings start to, you know, be in unsafe situations that were otherwise manageable up until that point.
0: So is it better for a parent to get help Earlier in the process when they're noticing that, and what would be the thing that they might notice, even though the kid's small and they're able to control it right now?
1: Well, really, it's going to depend on the individual, but I would say just in general, don't wait. Don't Mm -hmm. wait until you get to that point. And then going back earlier in our conversation, talking about early intervention, it's important for two aspects. One aspect, just developing the skills necessary to function socially. So that's gonna be your common sort of thing is we just need to start developing these social skills. Um, But second to that and related is if they don't develop those social skills, then that increases the chances that'll lead to more challenging behavior. So think about it. Um, We're talking about communicating with other people, a communication deficit. And so if you're not able to communicate your needs, that can be quite frustrating. And so if you get in early enough and develop those skills before they learn other ways of getting their needs met, which is through aggression or intimidation, then you have a higher chance of preventing that. But um, it does really come down to that. It's just, again, imagine yourself not being able to speak, right? you go to a restaurant, so sad. you go to a store. Think about what you do in your day-to-day life and how much of it involves you communicating to somebody your needs. And so if you shut shut that off, humans and really all, you know, all living things have a way of finding other ways of getting their needs met. Um, I often also refer to infants and crying. So crying is a functional behavior. It's it's a it's a form of expression. A form of communication crying means come attend to me
0: i'm uncomfortable something's I'm uncomfortable, not right
1: right so i have young ones at home and you know so i've gone through it and you just kind of go through a list of things do they,
0: <laughs> the steps do they, are they wet are they cold are they, are they hungry <laughs> they
1: Be burped right are they just tired and think of the frustration right not True. only for the for the individual But the person trying to help them, it's like, I cannot help you. I don't know what you need. And so that leads to that sort of high stress. And so then you combine that with, you know, I'm now older, I'm bolder, and I'm more assertive in trying to get my needs met, but I still don't have these skills, then they, you know, that's when it can, it can be too late, it can get out of hand, and it can be dangerous.
0: So they need to, to be thinking about those interventions earlier than I keep referring to, you know, people with autism or children with autism, you say developmental disability. Is that different? Is that just an umbrella term?
1: So um, the developmental is that it's, to put it simply, it's related to development. So again, development refers to certain skills that sort of standard people develop at certain times throughout their life. You learn to walk by a certain age, one or, you know, earlier or later. You learn, you start, you know, giving uh, cooing signs like communication signs. You start to laugh um, at certain things. You start to make eye contact at a certain point in your development. Um, And so on and on throughout the life, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things that take place early on in life, but we're developing these social skills all throughout our life. And so, if we're not hitting these milestones for some reason or another, we have to assess for a developmental bit disability. Developmental disabilities are typically going to be related to a cognitive deficit of some sort. And so, that's when it comes to the assessment piece. Um, so, is it, um, you know, cerebral palsy that might be occurring? Epilepsy actually can cause some cognitive delay, and then autism as well. And so these are common developmental disabilities that have an impact on developing certain skills or an inability to develop certain skills that are expected to be sort of learned at a certain point. And so that's when it comes down to you just assess for, you know, what's, what is it actually that's impacting them?
0: So what's happening, and then they can put a name to it. Yes. I know friends of ours have a son who he's 21 now and he has cerebral palsy and I really hadn't had a whole lot of interaction in my life. I just, you know, no one in my family had any developmental disabilities and we go over there. And for some reason he just loves me. He, I'm his person. I bring my daughters over who are around the same age, but it's all about me and he loves to just sit and hold my hand and, give me kisses. And he will tell me however long I'm there, you know, you know what? And I say, what? And he says, I love you, but it's, he'll say it. I mean, for two hours, however long I'm there. And he's super sweet and, and I'm only there for two hours, but I think about is that I'm guessing that's just kind of a developmental, I don't know, like a loop Is that some kind of a, and it's not a bad behavior. It's just a behavior that I sort of noticed with him. It's always the same. And it's whether I've seen him three times in a month, or if I see him, you know, three times in a year, it's always the same exact behavior, the same exact response. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you work with? I mean, that's good communication. So I'm guessing you don't really want to change that, or I don't know.
1: That's like it's that you you're on a good point there, because when it comes to treatment of any of these things we're talking about, you're really supposed to focus on behaviors or challenges that impact the individual's functioning day-to-day life. So, for him, for example, showing some affection, albeit perhaps slightly excessive, it's is it disrupting his day is it disrupting him accomplishing the things he needs to do or taking care of himself is it a harm to him a harm to others not outright right so it's not it's some things are a little more subtle and so it's very important to not to get ahead of yourself as a clinician and just try to perfect or manipulate people just to be sort of how you want them to behave you know we all have our quirks you know when it comes to i have
0: a couple
1: social interaction <laughs> and so you know some of that is you know afforded to all of us right um it's when those things become disruptive so right like if he's really crossing boundaries with you maybe physically or saying he wants to marry you that's when we're like okay okay let's, he does
0: say uh, that he tells oh, well, my husband that my husband should go away so he and i can be married so that i'm like oh cool. that's so sweet
1: it is sweet. It's cute. And so the ordinary person's like, oh, ha that's just so cute. I love it. Yeah. You know, but it could also be inappropriate. Somebody might not take it well. And and so while we're not going to go in and, you know, we're not going to do any sort of punishment or, you know, things like that and say, you're just wrong and you shouldn't think like this, but we can, we could potentially share some appropriate social stories with that individual about, what it means to be married, what it means to, you know, how that works, and, um, you know, what it means to engage with somebody and, and form a relationship, whether it's, you know, intimate or just being a friend. We could all, we could always, you know, take some opportunities to address those things and say, oh, well, you know, this is, that's not how it goes. I, I appreciate that you like me. I hope we can hang out, but you know, when married people, they typically stay together and that's the goal and the intent for us. And so you sort of, you can work on those things um, a little bit to kind of steer it because obviously it could, you know, potentially cross some boundaries and it's just better to understand the world around you. And we want to help somebody do that.
0: Interesting. I'm going to have to try that next time we're over there. Maybe just talking to them about you know, what do you think marriage is or yes, maybe talking about, you know, my husband and I, we've been married for 30 years and we have kids and maybe something like that. Because I always just thought, oh, that's super sweet. Mm -hmm. But now that you say that, it makes me think, well, what if he's doing that with the girl at the grocery store? Or, you know, what if he's doing that with every female that he comes in contact with? Mm -hmm. Then, like you said, then it's not necessarily, you know, somebody else might not think it's so sweet. So I observed the special needs kids in the gym once with the horses. And I have to tell you, it was so amazing. They were all just sweet and calm and they were leading the horses around and they were touching them and petting them. And it was just such a peaceful setting. And then I went to you know, the dining room in a different day. And it was kind of loud and chaotic. And there was a lot of yelling. And, and I just, I'm like, wow, I wonder, you know, do we have horses with them all the time? Like what, how is it that you guys on a day-to-day basis as a team, how do you deal with those different behaviors?
1: I'll tell you my my favorite question is why so <laughs> that's that is my specialty in life in general. um but that that speaks to the analysis part of behavior analysis. and what that involves is observing these situations over time and repeatedly, right? So you might have seen those isolated situations where it's just like, hmm. There's some things going on here. There's some things going on there. Well, you would want to do that as much and as often as possible in as many different settings as possible. And, you know, with our practice, what we start to do is is look for certain environmental cues that change behavior. And so with individuals with developmental and intellectual disabilities, they're often impacted by their environment. And particularly speaking to autism, when it comes to stimuli in the environment. So just things going on in the environment, noises, smells, people. Okay. And so, you know, for me, what you're describing is varying degrees of stimuli. So in in equine or horse, uh, in the horse group, they they are experiencing, they often sort of try to start out with a calm introduction. They talk about the horses. Uh, The horses are there obviously in front of them and animals in and of themselves have an impact on individuals. They can be soothing. And that's, you know, that's the whole purpose of that therapy. And so you will see oftentimes with, with our kids on our, in our program that all of a sudden they're just sort of Calm and tranquil when yeah. they're when they're there. And so um, beautiful. <laughs> that is a beautiful thing. I and mean, that's exactly why we do that particular group is that just animals in general have a certain way of impacting uh individuals that calms, soothes, it intrigues, it grabs their attention. Hmm, this person, this, this particular being is behaving in a certain way, but it's not like a human. So think about it, right? Okay. If you if you're trying to learn and pick up on cues from humans all day, that can get old, right? And you got this different being that lives and is doing different kind of behaviors that can be intriguing as well. You know, it can also come down to just a sensory thing. Horses are big and soft. You can go pet them. Um, so there's all sorts of things. We've, we've um, had dog therapy as well. Same, same thing. They just uh, has a way of intriguing and, and capturing that attention versus I'm in a cafeteria hall with a bunch of, you know, chaotic individuals around me. This is too much to handle. And so I don't otherwise know how to get out of this situation. So I'm just going to start to kind of like have a anxious response behaviorally to the situation. I might just like act out. So somebody like attends to me and removes me from the situation, or I'm just frustrated and I don't, I'm not aware of why I'm frustrated. It's so much going on and I'm just going to start to yell. It's just too much going on. Um, And that's when you start to see some of the challenging behaviors and it's, it's, it oftentimes comes down to a function or a, a, the purpose of trying to get out of that situation or to reduce whatever feelings that situation is causing. And so again, talking about autism, it's very much sensory related. Again, it can have varying degrees, not not all individuals, with autism are the same, but some are easily overstimulated. So think about you know a concert that you've been to or, um, you know, a sporting event, that is a different experience. I remember watching the Phoenix Suns basketball and it's, you know, I had my girls there, you know, a a year or so ago. And, you know, one of them just wanted to plug their ears the whole time. (laughs) That's usually
0: me like, okay, I need quiet. There's too much going on.
1: Whereas I was fine, you know? And so we all have different thresholds when it comes to that. And so when you start to look at individuals with autism, those thresholds tend to be lower. And so they have a response to that. So my daughter might have been able to solve that problem herself. She plugged her ears. Somebody who doesn't have this coping skills or a way to resolve it, or even understand why they're feeling the way they are, might do some other things that my daughter could have very well just got up and ran, you know, from the bleachers or started to cry or started to like You know, just rock back and forth, different things that the body tends to do to reduce these other things that are going on.
0: I understand that self, you know, sort of self soothing behaviors yes. versus those behaviors of I want out of the situation, but I can't tell you. Yes. Um, goodness. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really I've learned so much and I really appreciate you answering all of my questions. Um, hopefully nothing was too horribly <laughs> worded. Uh, but I really appreciate it. It was nice to talk with you. And I'm sure that I'll have you back at some point in the future to dig even deeper into that special needs community and what we do for these kids at Aurora. So thanks so much,
1: Travis. It's my pleasure. And again, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, anytime excited to talk about these things. And, and definitely, you know, uh, don't be too hard on yourself for your questions. In fact, this is... <laughs> This is an appropriate, you know, I think sort of conversation and appropriate questions. And because this is, I would say, speaking to a general community and how we try to understand these things, right, without getting too technical, you know, or too scientific with it. It's it's really sometimes just flat out, hey, this is what I observe. This is what's going on. Um, so I always appreciate having these conversations. So thank, thank you, you, thank for, you for your,
0: me. Thank you for your grace. I appreciate that.
1: <laughs> yeah, my pleasure.
0: All right.